0: Welcome to Reroute, this is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to talk to Jeffrey Laddish. Jeffrey is a security researcher and consultant who's worked with a number of organizations, most recently Stanford University, on modeling and addressing security threats. His current focus is civilizational threat modeling, with a particular focus in biosecurity. We'll be talking to him about existential and catastrophic risk, how to think about the double-edged nature of many technologies, and the importance of attributing the source of SARS-CoV-2 we even toss in a few tips for your own personal digital security. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Jeffrey Laddish. Hi, I'm here with Jeffrey Laddish. How are you doing today, Jeffrey? I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Gavin? Doing pretty good. So... Uh, you and I know each other. We've known each other for a few years here, I think, uh, originally through kind of like the rationality and uh, effective altruism community. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it seems right.
0: So one of the things that we talked about uh, before jumping in was that you've been uh, looking a lot at uh, different sort of global risks. And I know you are a person who, uh, I believe your quote is uh, taking a security
1: mindset uh, upon everything, uh, if I'm correct there. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. Applying the security mindset to everything. There um, you go. And I've I sort of like created that tagline kind of flippantly, and then I was like, wait, no, that actually really fits. Like that is sort of how I think about the world. I think that the first thing that got me very interested in this approach was thinking about the risk of nuclear war. Interesting, uh, because it's like <laughs> it's like in some ways just like the most concrete and practical one, um, while also being completely insane. Um, whereas like we just live in a world where there are thousands of nuclear weapons pointed at. Uh, you know, the, the US has a bunch that are that are pointed at the uh, Russia and China and, um, and and vice versa. And, you know, we're basically sort of have this hope that we never get into a nuclear war, and that our cities aren't completely, you know, annihilated. But we just have to deal with the fact that like something could go wrong, there could be an accident, or there could be some sort of crazy escalation to war. And then it would be not all over, like it wouldn't be the end of, of humanity, but it would be like a, a giant global catastrophe. And so I think, it's really hard to internalize that because it's for most people it's not actionable. It's like it's really hard to, to like imagine. But once you get there and like realize that this is just the state of the world, it just like changes your perspective a bit, and you're like, "Huh? <laughs> like, what, okay, what does this mean?" Or like, "What? What do we do with this?" And so I think absolutely, I had this realization in college, um, and then yeah, thought about yeah, are there things we can do about it? And and yeah, it turns out there's like you know there's a whole series of literature about ways that people have thought about risk. And ways that people have thought about how to model these threats, and um, yeah, and as you mentioned, you know, effective altruism and sort of groups of people who are trying to sort of take the the sort of quantitative risk seriously and try to minimize it and see if there are actions, high leverage actions that we can take to reduce this risk. Um, so yeah, the nuclear space was how I I think how I sort of first became really passionate about how to sort of how to approach large scale risk, um, and then that that has led me to more recently, think a lot more about biotechnology and sort of what are the risks from biotechnology as sort of the emerging extremely powerful technology or or one of them I think ai is is, is the other um, that's going to have pretty transformative effects on on uh, <laughs> on everything on everything um, yeah well, I look forward
0: to uh, not only talking about that but talking about some of the ways that we can hopefully use those technologies for good and to try to stave off uh, some of these disasters. maybe a way that we can start is. There's two terms that get used a lot when talking about this, uh, existential risk
1: and catastrophic risk. Uh, can you can you explain those a little bit to us and, and help define them? Yeah. So an existential risk is risk of human extinction. So complete game over, like 100% of, of humans die and, and there's that's it. There's, there's no more humanity. There's no more people. And then a, a global catastrophic risk or a catastrophic risk is uh, people have defined it in different ways. I think I usually sort of think of it as a a the risk of a catastrophe where like more than a billion or two people die. Like we're talking mm-hmm. a, a huge event, um, you know, something like a nuclear war where you know there's there's no extinction event that happens, but but it's 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 it changes life as as everyone on this planet knows it, and it's and it's 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 awful. So, and I think that there's a question of like, well, you know, why not just call all of these things catastrophic risks? And I there's a sort of an interesting philosophical point that people make that I think has some real grounding, but is like not intuitive um, or is a little intuitive. It sort of depends on your perspective where the, yeah, the basic thing is that people have made this argument and Nick Bostrom has and and some some other philosophers have that uh, it's, it's much, much worse potentially to lose 100% of the population than 99% of the population. Right. If you lose 99%, that, that 1% can rebuild and you sort of make, make things, uh, Sort of rebuild civilization, or, or sort of continue, continue humanity, continue sort of this like project of sentience and and, and whatever. Um, but if you lose hundred percent, then you you cut off the rest of the future. And this, from a utilitarian standpoint, um, which they, they they sort of make this they make this philosophical case with a number of different philosoph with like a number of different frameworks. And from a from a utilitarian standpoint. You can say like, well, you know, if you imagine the value of of like one human life is X, and you uh, you think about like how many potential humans there are in the future. Like, you right. know, there's two hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and like over two hundred billion galaxies, and you, you like, you know, and think about the like. Trillions of years we have in the future, and, and you know they sort of like <laughs> create this like massive uh, this massive number, and they're like that's that's the value of of the future. And I think for a lot of people, they're like, um, maybe, but I, I can't I can't like value trillions of people like that's not real to me or something. Um, yeah. So, and it's interesting because it, it it seems to kind of invalidate a lot of other concerns when you start
0: uh, having an almost infinite weight upon the future, right?
1: Yeah, it feels like cheating or something. You're like, well. I like, what about my family? Like, what about my friends? Or like, what about this, like, you know, what about like, um, you know, like the, the criminal justice system that like needs to be fixed? And I think it's, I think it, people often have this reaction of like, you're making this abstract utilitarian argument, but like, it's really doesn't, it like bounces off. Like, it doesn't feel real or it feels overwhelming or it feels like it, it's a hard to relate to it. Um, but I, so I think I'm really interested in trying to tell the story a little, a little differently. Um, I, so the way I think about it is that I'm like, okay, so I can imagine a future where there's like a big catastrophe and like most of my family and friends die, which would be like really awful. But if I imagine that where like every, like where everyone dies, then I think about the fact that like, I'll never have great grandchildren or like great, great grandchildren, like right. they're like this, even, even if it's not my own kids, but like the sort of the like lineage that is me or the like meaning that is like my community or like my people will just be like gone. We'll just be like ripped away from existence in a way that's, like, really sad. Um, but, but if I imagine that, like, somehow they, like, make it through and they, like, survive and then, like, they rebuild and, like, make this, some other future, you know, who knows what it'll be like. But then I'm like, no, 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 like, that part of me lives on. Like, my, my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren, like, will get through it and they'll, they'll survive, like, just like our ancestors did, right? Like, humanity mm-hmm. got through a, like, major uh, population bottleneck during, I think, the, like, last Glacial Maximum. I don't remember how, like, small the population got down to, but it was, like... It was small. Small yeah. like thousands? I don't know. Um, yeah, I think it was in the tens, but yeah, it was very small. Yeah. So, so yeah, I don't know. I th- I sort of think that like the, the like sort of EI should try to to make this argument um, a little more like at the sort of felt level or at the emotional level um, because I think I think actually people do intuit this. It's just that when you say like oh, compare these like trillions to like, these billions, people are like, eh. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't like know what you mean. Yeah,
0: absolutely. You, you sort of hope remains of rebuilding and. Yeah, you you can imagine that there are still people to care about things in the future if we at least preserve a few. Um, And I think maybe there's a. uh, I'm curious if you include this in here too. But I've heard uh, to this point that uh, permanent curtailment is also uh, included in this category of existential risk. Where you know, if we think about these like near permanent totalitarian dystopias where, you know, maybe it's a totalitarian state and everybody has lethal injection bracelets on or something like that, where it's just there's kind of like no ability to get out uh, or rebuild, uh, that this also sort of counts as an existential risk.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that would be that would be dark. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a little skeptical that there are like stable configurations of like mm. long-term totalitarian states, which makes me a little more optimistic about avoiding those kinds of scenarios. But, but I definitely agree that if those states did exist and they were stable, um, then that would be something that we should work really hard to avoid. I think it might be possible with like with some pretty significant like AI like assistance. Um, yeah, but i but i but I don't th- I think it's relatively unlikely without that. So I sort of clump those risks into the AI risks, but but I some people really disagree so. yep. and 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 I do think that's interesting. because I think we'll talk about this, but it seems like you, uh, for your career here, uh,
0: uh, looking in the immediate future, are sort of focused on, uh, risk areas
1: outside of AI. Is that fair? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's sort of funny because I do spend some amount of my time thinking about AI risk. And in part, that's just because a lot of my friends do, or a lot of my friends mm-hmm. like work on that professionally, and it's super fascinating. So it's like, I get nerd sniped by it for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, But I've tried to sort of focus on the <laughs> sort of non-AI existential risks because I think sort of hilariously, they're a little more neglected within um, sort of the the, the overall field of of existential risk sort of study uh, research. Um, And I think, you know, in part because people have thought that AI is the sort of most significant existential risk. And this is where the distinction between catastrophic and existential is important because I think people do totally acknowledge that like, you know, AI is like something that we might develop or like probably will develop, but like it's it's very hypothetical. We don't know what it would look like. We don't know sort of what general purpose intelligence would look like. but we do know that nuclear weapons are real, and like nuclear, the risk of nuclear war is, is really real and quite concrete. But I think the thing that makes people focus less on it as an existential threat is that it would be really hard to cause human extinction via nuclear weapons—not necessarily impossible, but like pretty difficult. Right. So that even though it might be like a greater catastrophic threat, it might be a a less great uh, existential threat. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think as a result of that, th- these these risks have gotten less attention, like not from the world as a whole, but from sort of the existential risk community in particular. So I've sort of taken that as like a niche that I should explore, um, in, in part because I was already really interested in it, um, and so it seemed like a, a relative advantage kind of thing. Definitely,
0: and it does seem interesting because it do, it, it seems like there are there's pot, there's ways of thinking about all the risks outside of AI uh, holistically that sometimes just doesn't apply to AI. And so I, I see the ways that it does make it a little bit easier to carve that out. Um, I also just, in a little bit of levity, uh, wanted to define the term nerd sniped, because I think this is a very important term to really know, <laughs> uh, which is when you um, when you put out a problem that's just so juicy uh, for somebody who would consider themselves a nerd that they can't help but try to solve it or talk, talk to about it. Uh, so uh, useful term to use. Um, yeah it's a a problem yeah (laughs) but a good problem yeah so uh here on the podcast you know we always try to you know we could talk a lot about uh the problems but you know we always try to pivot towards you know what are the solutions and how can we uh try to find some bright spots and some reroutes here so um you know talking talking a little bit about that um how do you think about you know how we can start to address these things i know you've you've Talked about the term kind of dual use risk assessments, and there's this. Uh, it would be fair to say that that's kind of similar to like a double edged sword, uh, as it's commonly known.
1: Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, I appreciate that you're like keeping us optimistic or hopeful. I think that that's super valuable, <laughs> because yep. yeah, I think this this stuff can be super overwhelming. Um, but I think that um, I personally feel like a, a mix of of like oh no, and and lots of optimism because. I, part of it is I see lots of people like working on these things and, and trying really hard uh, to to make the world better. Um, so, <laughs> so one I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Two. Um, yeah. So I, I think defining. So yeah, let me just like define what like a, a dual use risk is. is when, a, sure. when a new technology is created or uh, sort of you know, maybe a incremental improvement in a technology, um, there might be ways that this technology can be used. Um, with lots of positive applications, um, might be good for you know economic development, or it might be uh, you know just useful in, in medicine or, or industry. Um, sort of what realize what kind of technology it is. This is sort of a general-purpose term. Uh, and then you know some some technologies can also be used um, uh, to cause harm, whether that's um, you know sort of direct military application, um, or whether that's you know sort of sort of a more could be used in, in terrorism, or could just be used to murder people, or you know whatever. Um, but I think it's it's generally used in the context of, like, military application or, like, weaponization. So I think this term really came into prominence um, around, um, well, I, I'm not sure if it was nuclear weapons where this, like, first uh, came into prominence. But I think I'm familiar with it, especially through, like, thinking about missile technology or sort of all, mm. all kinds of, like, space technology, where it's, like, very useful um, to be able to put things into orbit, to be able to put satellites and things up there. Um, incredibly helpful, incredibly good Um Good advancement, you know. We can like now get like Starlink uh, internet, which is, which is going to be great. You can like have a a, a rural farm somewhere uh, with with like, like a fast internet connection. You know, amazing. As a quick but aside,
0: that is wild. Have you seen those in the sky yet?
1: I haven't seen. I've seen pictures of them, and and the other day my friend was in the the Oakland Hills. He was like looking up and was like, "Yeah, I saw this like line of." like dots, like in a p- perfectly parallel line across the sky. Like, what? It is surreal.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's. I almost don't even know how to feel about it. It feels a little bit like light pollution, but it is also just such a uh, triumph to engineering. I was out camping a couple weeks ago, and yeah, just from horizon to horizon is just a string of beads that look like the brightest stars in the sky streaming overhead. It was very surreal. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So, so Starlink is this SpaceX project to put up... Um, I don't I forget, like how many how many satellites are putting up like i think it's like hundreds but but maybe mm-hmm. it's low thousands um and they're like they're in extremely like low earth orbit and um which which you need to be in low Earth orbit so that you can like so that the bandwidth works oh sorry so the, the latency. latency works out yep. yeah yeah thanks um and yeah apparently the um apparently the like amateur astronomy community has like gotten pretty mad because they they do create a lot of like pollution and what i've heard is it's less of an issue for um, the sort of like larger, like, I don't know, I don't, I don't, there's something about like why it's, it's it's more of an issue for amateur astronomy than it is for sort of like professional astronomy. Uh, <laughs> I apologize if I'm wrong about this, I'm not super confident, but that was like my rough understanding. And then, of course, Elon's like, you know, why not? why not just like focus on space-based astronomy? Like, which of course you would say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we can
0: launch it for you if you just pay us some money. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and I hear they're finally starting to try to apply some darker paint to them or something like that to, to make it not so bright. But yeah, but yeah, yeah it's totally. definitely a sight to behold if you can see it. Um, so, so going back. Yeah. So um, yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because there's, it seems like there's this open question and it, maybe it's easier to talk about specifics than in general, but Um, What you really would love to be able to do, right, as a technologist, is um, have some ways of thinking about the technology that you're building in such a way that as you build it or as you do your research, you're sort of likely to create more good than harm or create a technology that is more easily used for one versus the other. Um, Do you have... Either thoughts on how we can do that, or maybe there's a good example that we can pull up, uh, maybe in biosecurity to talk about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah, I was I was bringing up the, the the Starlink example as like, um, you know, this is the kind of technology where it's super uh, useful. It's it's super, yeah. um, it's like clearly really good. But right. but it's a it's a dual use um, technology. So uh, if you are trying to export that technology to, um, you know, sort of any country that that the US is not like, a really close ally of. Um, there'd be significant export restrictions on that. And there's all sorts of like federal laws and regulations around what you can do with that technology. Because of course, like while you can launch satellites, you could also launch nuclear weapons. Like it's the same technology you need for nuclear delivery systems. Um, or little lower delivery Yeah. Systems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um for cruise missiles or, or or whatever. You know, it's it's all sort of in this, in, like it's all it's all unfortunately intimately wrapped up. So this has been a, a a sort of a standard problem um in 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 the sort of aerospace industry for a long time. Um, But we're sort of now recognizing that this is a huge problem in in biotechnology as well, and I'd say it's it's like an even bigger problem in biotechnology because um, of sort of the the nature of the of the tech. You know, if you're sending something to space, it's pretty clearly like ah, you're sending something to space. Yes, it could be a missile. Like it's it's like it's pretty clear. But life Mm -hmm. science, you know, like life science research or or biotechnology research is is this huge field and just covers so many different things, Um, and so it's it's like really you know, if you're working on a vaccine. it, that's, that's clearly a, a really important thing to be working on. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, the, uh, I think it's um, J&J and AstraZeneca and a few others of these, um, not 100% sure on this, but, but, but definitely a, a number of these are um, adenovirus uh, vector va- vaccines. So what that means is um, you, you need to somehow get uh, a bunch of information into your cells to be able to produce the spike protein um, right. and that the immune system will then recognize and make antibodies to it. And so one way to get that information into those cells is to use a sort of benign virus to deliver um, that information. Right. And so we use this adenovirus vector. And that's a thing that we've been developing for a number of years. There's been a number of vaccines that have used that before. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> like while this is a really good technology and it totally works, the thing that you need to do um, to make this, these kinds of vaccines really good is that you need to understand how to evade immune defenses. Oh really? Right? Oh wow. Well, well, yeah, because like yeah, the immune system yeah, yeah, sure. like it sort of doesn't want you to like have viruses like running around putting stuff in cells. So you're like, we have to shut that down. And so like as a vaccine designer, your your goal is to like, you know, figure out how to bypass those things. And so we have as a society, we have to deal with the fact that like, you know, such a, a like benign and good application as um, as you know, sort of these, these, these vaccines. Creates this dual use dilemma. Like it creates this risk that someone could use that for malicious purposes. You know, not the people who are making the vaccines, but the people who you know can use that research, or or the people who you know, um, or maybe people who have trained doing that could then go work somewhere else. Um, yeah, it, it creates it creates this this, this tricky problem. And um, so yeah, I'm, I'm working on a project right now that's uh, with Stanford to try to sort of um, work with funders and work with publishers. To sort of improve guidelines around this. Um, like one, th- I think one thing you said before is like, you know, how like how should scientists think about this? And like ideally, they they sort of think about this like early on in their research before they've like, you know, gone gone all the way and developed some new technology or like sort of you know carried out a bunch of a bunch of research in, in a particular space. But it is tricky. Um, and I think one of the tricky things is that like on one hand you're like, yeah, we want scientists to think really hard about what uh sort of the, the dual risk nature of, of some of their work on, on the other hand we're like wait do we like <laughs> mm. maybe, maybe we should like train a bunch of scientists to think through how to weaponize things right because like that's, that's like part of what you train people to do if you're like training people to spot risky things you're also training them to think about what things might be risky um and then that could like help someone figure out like how to weaponize something if they're like suddenly spending a bunch of time thinking about like what are the downsides so it's actually a pretty thorny problem.
0: Yeah, that is. You you have to you have to put some trust in someone somewhere.
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. So there is a there is a problem with like whether you should have people think through dual use risk implications of their work really seriously.
0: Because on one hand,
1: like you want people to be like responsible. You want people to understand the implications of their work, uh, especially when like you're pretty sure that like most of them are good actors, and they're like not going right. to want to engage in work if they know that it actually could be quite harmful. But on the other hand, like if you train people to think about the dual use risk potential of their work, they're going to think more about ways that their work could be used intentionally to cause harm. And so maybe like a very small percentage of them are inclined to cause harm, but like now you've given them sort of more tools. And so you have to say basically sort of decide like whether the benefits of that kind of training outweighs the risks of that kind of training. Uh, which means that <laughs> that in and of itself is sort of a dual use problem. Um, That's interesting. Now, now we're getting meta, which is which is always a good sign, right? Oh,
0: it is. It is always a good sign. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Well, and it's it, like it leads into this whole uh, uh, topic of right, because you know, not only you know might a couple actors be bad actors, but but researchers and scientists and you know even engineers to a uh, certain degree are very excited about just getting interesting ideas out there, right? Uh, publishing, sort of sharing results, sharing thinking, uh, whether that's you know officially or through blogs or different things, and so it kind of begs these questions of uh, what's oftentimes called like information hazards, right? Like what what <laughs> information would it actually be uh, dangerous to have out there? Uh, and it seems like there's some places where it's pretty obvious, right? Like um, I think that we can all generally agree that it's probably good that there is not widely available plans for how to easily make a nuclear bomb. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, It's a Good example. Yeah. And then, and then, but it gets a lot fuzzier when you start talking about things like, you know, viral vectors for, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, vaccinations and such. Yeah, exactly. Uh, You have like, I'm sure this is something that you've, we've thought about, you know, how, uh, like how, you know, how do you, how do you think about this? And like, you know, if somebody has an idea of something that they think is dangerous, you know, how, how do you even think that they should think about that?
1: Yeah. So I think, yeah, this is a, this is a pretty hard problem. Um, I think that, yeah, sort of within the effective altruism and like sort of existential risk spheres, people have thought about, you know, like, you know, how should we think about information hazards? Uh, Nick Bostrom has like a paper about trying to lay out the like uh, typology of information hazards, which we can link to. Um, one yeah. of the things I like in that paper is that like spoilers is like a really low class of information hazard because you're like, oh, if you like yeah. <laughs> if you spoil the thing, now like that you know I can't go back to that state so like now you've like created a writ. I don't know it's it's uh pretty great. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah just, like
0: spoilers insofar as like the endings of movies and stuff, right? yeah, absolutely it's yeah <laughs> ideally to keep those off
1: the front pages of websites yeah just a little context since i keep mentioning nick bostrom um he is uh the founder of the uh future of humanity institute um fhi in oxford and th- and he's sort of like one of the original thinkers who sort of cr- founded this field of existential risk um and like studying studying these risks so he sort of he wrote the book Superintelligence um about ai right. risks and he's sort of like really been a like he's such an amazing mind he's 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 like very like systematic about everything. He's like very precise. And he's like, we need to lay out like all of the considerations. Um, So yeah, that's just like some context on, on who he is. Definitely. Uh, He
0: also wrote, uh, was it the book about Ms? So that's, that's, um, Oh, that was Hanson. That's right. That's right. It's Hanson. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So, you know, coming back, I think, you know, information hazards are interesting, right? Because you have this sense in which, yeah. We should be concerned about some of these things. We should be concerned about talking about them. Uh, But I feel like I also see it used as kind of like a way of uh, silencing discussion on certain topics or... Uh, it feels like it's painted with a little bit of a broader brush. Like there's a sense where it's it's much, much easier to criticize something or or say that it's dangerous than to, you know, kind of
1: put stuff out into the world, um, right? Oh, yeah. And, sorry, Gavin. We can't talk about that. That's an information hazard. Oh, uh, man. And, and sorry, you're not cool enough to just really to be in that cert. Uh, we <laughs> should just probably stop recording this right now. Yeah, yeah. We should definitely stop. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. definitely a bad idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think. What's, what's unfortunate is that there are these, these very sound like, theoretical concerns where you're like, no, there's definitely, we can definitely like, come up with good examples of where information can cause harm. Um, mm-hmm. And we can come up with information where like, lots of cases where it's like, important to have that information out there so that people can, can use it. So we're like, okay, information can be dual use. That's true. Um, but unfortunately, there's like, lots of social effects and social incentives around, around this like, whole, whole space. So like one of them that I was just making a joke about is that you could it can sort of seem high status to be like the one who like knows about all of the secret knowledge and mm, to sort of right. be the gatekeeper of that and to say, well, I don't really know if like you get to know this stuff, right? And so now you've created like an right. incentive for people to like, you, I don't know, find information hazards or to like sort of overstate to what extent the information they have is risky in order to seem really cool. And like, that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's like not, yeah. it's not what we want. Um, and it's very hard because, you know, if I'm like, oh, I'm really concerned about something, um, and I think, you know, something needs to be done about this problem. Um, but I don't want to sort of communicate what that problem is in, in case that, that information is dangerous. Like now, now there's a coordination challenge. There's a, there's a right. coordination challenge. Of, like, how do you work together on information when you sort of, uh, or how do you work together on problems when you're sort of not willing to share your model about why those things are problems in the first place, first place, um. And I don't have a solution to this problem, but I do think that this is an area where I think there needs to be like more, both theoretical and practical work to sort of try to figure out like how to go forward with this. Um, Yeah,
0: that makes sense. I know, you know, one of the heuristics I've developed for myself around this is um, that uh, things that I think are both very dangerous and also very cheap, (laughs) I don't like to talk about, Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's just a few things that I've encountered that are like that. And I, you know, I'm not going to share examples here. Uh, But when you see something where you're like, okay, uh, somebody with very little resources could potentially take this idea and cause a lot of harm. Uh, I think I've seen without talking about the exact research, I think you've seen this where like people have have started talking about very cheap ways of like um, uh, purifying uh, uranium, right. Or or, or different fissile material for bombs. Right. And so, uh, I feel like that is one that I've kind of carved out for myself. I don't think about information hazards too much outside of that, but I feel like that's how I've kind of taken that myself.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important to like think about what the threat model is. So, like <laughs> for me, everything com- comes back to threat modeling. So the question is, like, sure, what you know, what is the agent that could take that information and, and use it for harm, and like how you know how likely are they to to like, sort of get the information and, and like use the information? Um, so, like, I think there are some in, in the biospace. There are some kinds of um, and I, so, so just like a quick, a quick aside, we, 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 we started by talking about like dual use risks or like sort of dual use technologies. Yep. Um, and then we talked about information hazards, but there's something like sort of ontologically interesting about these categories in that like information hazard is just expressing a security concern where you're like, oh no, this information can be used for harm. Whereas dual use is pointing out both a, a harm and a benefit. It's like intentionally mm-hmm. highlighting the fact That there is both um, a a, a security concern um, and a a potential upside. So I I think it it might be more useful instead of using the term information hazard, and I'm not sure about this, but I'm sort of floating this idea, to Mm -hmm. to use the term like dual use information. um, Oh, interesting. To talk about the cases where like this information could be helpful as well. Now, if we think that this information isn't helpful, maybe we should just say it's strictly an information hazard and it's not helpful. Um, but I think sometimes the framing of information hazard makes it seem like there's no upside to sharing, or there's no cost to sort of keeping the information secret, whereas I think that's often not the case. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Um, you know, just kind of moving as we go into the um, this sort of concept of dual use, you know, one that feels very uh, timely is this sort of gain of function research, right? Yeah. Uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit about that, uh, and maybe how it's relevant to, uh, to SARS-CoV-2?
1: Yeah, totally. So gain-of-function research is um, a, a category of research, of biology research, um, mostly working with viruses, where you take a virus and you give it capabilities it didn't previously have. And the reason that people do this is usually to try to study how a virus might evolve or adapt To be able to uh, infect humans in the the future, so Mm -hmm. it's like basically trying to get ahead of viral evolution to like study, you know, sort of you know what viruses might present the most risks to humans, as well as what tricks might they have up their sleeve in terms of what they'll end up doing. Um, But of course, like a lot of people have raised concerns about this kind of work because what you're essentially doing is creating viruses with the potential to be um, pandemics, pandemic potential pathogens. Right. and this this was um, we should look up exactly um, i think there's a, there's, a, there's a moratorium in the u s on funding this kind of work. I forget when exactly um, but um this this came on the tail of some i think h one n one research um or, or some kind of uh, influenza research where they were basically taking ferrets and they were passaging viruses between the ferrets to try to to make the viruses uh be more transmissible. They were taking a, actually a a bird, a bird flu. Um, and they were trying to make that more transmissible among ferrets. So basically, going from crossing the like bird to mammal and then mammal to mammal um, uh, space. So which, which is like the kind of thing that you do to study like how this might, you know, how how a flu might um, jump over to the human population and spread in the human population, which has been a, I think probably the biggest um, sort of concern among epidemiologists in terms of new new potential pandemics. So like SARS has been a big, um, concern, like SARS-like viruses has been a big concern. Um, and, and obviously we're thinking about that a lot because of COVID was a, you know, a SARS-like virus, um, right. SARS-CoV-2. Um, but, uh, but before that, I think there was much more concern about, uh, uh, new, new sources of, of influenza viruses. And so, um, yeah, I think some in the early 2010s, there was this, this research that, um, yeah, with ferrets, um, and, and with, with bird flu viruses and basically, um, this led to like a whole series of discussions and yeah, eventually there was a, a moratorium. Yeah. I'm, I'm, seeing this pulled up. Um,
0: yeah. Producer Nick just pulled up for us. Uh, sadly, it seems like in 2017 they uh, resumed funding of gain of function experiments.
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we had, yeah, we had the moratorium in 2014, and then they resumed in, in 20 in 2017. Um, and, and I think that was a mistake. You know, I, th- I think that like, as we can see, um, pandemics are are super damaging and, and, and super costly you know we're talking I don't know what the economic damage from from covid has been but but obviously it's been enormous and the question is like what what possibly could justify this um you know and I think if there was some some benefit to that research that made it much much less likely to have pandemics in the future or to respond to them really well then that maybe would be justified um mm-hmm. but that seems pretty unlikely um and I think you know the sort of elephant in the room is, where did COVID come from? Like, was you know, was this the result of uh, a, a laboratory accident, um, or was it the result of um, a, a a sort of natural j- a crossing over? Um, and yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, Gavin, I'm when curious. I know. You're yeah, going. yeah, go ahead. I, I know you've been looking at this a lot. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm curious about like what your take on that question has been, just as like a like, relative... like a person
0: yeah uh, uh yeah uh, and so you're sort of questing uh, uh talking about kind of like uh whether the virus escaped from a lab or was man-made or was uh sort of naturally jumped from an animal to humans is that right? military bioweapon yeah exactly <laughs> i mean yeah there's there's a bunch of different ways i think about that right you know one is um uh, can i apply this heuristic here i feel like i kind of do so like when i try to find like figure out the truth claims about the world like i oftentimes think about kind of like is a is there a plausible mechanism of action and like is there evidence for this thing? And like the more I have of one, like the less I need of the other, or something. And in here, there like for the like mechanism of action side of things, like, yeah, like clearly uh if China was trying to destroy the US economy, like this would be the best way to do it. <laughs> um and so like there's kind of like a plausible story there, but yet we don't really have almost any evidence of it looking like it's man-made. So my, like the the best that I've been able to to figure out, and, and also at the same time, you have this lab right there in Wuhan, right? Um, mm-hmm. Doing this exact kind of research on these exact kind of viruses. And so um, I, I am pretty skeptical about it being intentional. It just seems like that requires too much of a conspiracy and kind of too much uh, going on uh, for me. I, I think that it's possible. I just don't think it's likely. And then with the um, the lab escape hypothesis, that seems far more likely to me. I don't know. I would maybe put that at like a sixty-five percent chance, just from like my outside view of what happened, uh, versus it just happening naturally in uh, you know a wet market or whatever. But I, I don't know. You know, this is me as a layman, so I'm, I'm curious about your uh, a little bit more uh,
1: enlightened opinion. Cool. Yeah. No, I, I totally appreciate. I appreciate getting different people's takes because it's mm-hmm. like I think it's it's interesting. I've like looked into sort of other events that have happened in the past, like laboratory escapes or like uh, zoonotic uh, origins of different viruses. And most people don't know anything about them, understandably. I didn't didn't know anything about them until looking into them recently. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's one example, I think it's like 1970 or something or around 1970, where there was a a new flu pandemic, but it only affected people. It was like affected people under like 25 or something. Uh, because mm-hmm. it turns out that this, this, was, this flu was identical to a flu strain from 1955. And what, what had happened, we don't know exactly what happened, but clearly there was some sort of either laboratory escape or some, someone was testing a vaccine and it didn't go so well and sort of mm-hmm. became virulent again. Um, but you, you got this like reemergence of a, of a sort of previous um, influenza um, strain. And, so, and there's been a, a couple other instances of, of things like this where you, you basically had a escape of a sort of um, pathogen that, that people had been working with. Not a like creation of a novel pathogen, but but an escape of a pre-existing pathogen. Yeah. Um, and there's been lots of examples of uh, SARS, SARS-1 um escaping from a lab and not causing a pandemic, you know, only infecting a few cases, then being contained very quickly. But I think there were like a handful of cases where this happened in, in China um after the the original uh, SARS outbreak. So it's like, okay, this yeah. <laughs> this, this thing can can happen. And, and so it I'm has happened. At, yeah, exactly. Has happened. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, but like that's like all sort of like feels like this sort of theoretical like biosecurity question that that like you know I talk about with biosecurity researchers um, or like at conferences. But it's it's interesting now that here here we all are in this global pandemic, and now it's it's on everyone's mind. Mm-hmm. And it sort of goes from a like theoretical sort of like defense type question or security type question to a like wait this like impacts everyone, and like most people have some opinion about it or like want to relate to it because like we want right. to have an explanation for like why our lives got disrupted so much in the last few years. So it's interesting to see like sort of everyone have an opinion about this question that I, I, you know, is a super important question because we like absolutely want to be able to prevent these um, things in in the past. Well, yeah. And
0: and maybe I'll ask a little bit of a uh, uh, like intentionally pointed question or whatever, but, but I find it's an interesting one, which is like, why does it matter? Like, why does it matter if we can figure out whether it came from a lab or not?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know it's it's one data point and so i think it's you know we, we shouldn't overgeneralize from one data point but it's but it's a pretty a pretty powerful data point i think it if it could be conclusively so that i think there's there's two things so it's like one you know just does the information help us to to update which you know it, it should if we're like uh you know sort of applying you know good principles of reasoning sure. um getting these of of updates yeah yeah, yeah,
0: yeah yeah exactly
1: right yeah. like um, you know, if this thing came from a lab, then we we, we should now say like, oh, <laughs> new new pandemics can come from labs. Like this has never happened before. This is huge. We should we should really rethink how we're doing um, lab lab safety, and we should also rethink how we're doing um, gain of function research. Yeah, so, maybe we
0: stop funding them again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, maybe another it might help more that boring. case. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> um, or like maybe that didn't go far enough. You know, maybe there's a lot of other things we could try to do. Um, so I think that that's like there's like the what evidence we get. There's also the. If we could sort of demonstrate it conclusively, um, what what does that sort of what does that what does that say about like can that be a coordination point? I think if there was a extremely mm. strong evidence for a for a lab origin of this virus, um, that would be really um, that would be really influential in making a really strong case for um, the changes that that I mentioned, right? Like for doing another moratorium and for going a lot further. Um, so <laughs> this is really hard. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the Wuhan Institute of Virology, um, Please, which yeah. is the, the lab in Wuhan, um, and um, EcoHealth Alliance, which is an, an organization that basically tries to study the emergence of, of new, new viruses. Um, and what they do is they go out into, into the wild, and they sample a bunch of wild animal populations, and they, they swab them for viruses, and they take those viruses back to the lab, and they sequence them, and they study them, and they try to figure out like, where, um, you know, where, where might the next pandemic come from? And I think this is like very well motivated work. I think you know, like pandemics are terrible, and they do mm-hmm. like usually come from nature, so it makes sense, um, sort of from a fundamental perspective, to to study it in this way. Um, so I, I think I want to say, like these people are people who who are really trying to prevent the thing that just happened. Like that's that's their right. whole mission. Right. Um, but of course, you know, like with <laughs> like with you know like lots of kinds of like dual use work, this this work creates creates risks. It creates risks yeah. both um of people using this maliciously and it creates risks of accidents.
0: Yeah, good and, intentions does not <laughs> prevent the opportunity of having negative consequences,
1: right? Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, one of the things that the Wuhan Institute of Virology did with some of the viruses they were studying is that they they basically worked with them in mice. Um and they said like let's, you know, let's ha- let's infect mice with these viruses, these bat viruses and see how wow. they do. yeah. Um And they used, and they didn't just use mice, they used mice that were engineered to express human uh, ACE2 receptors. Um, You know, ACE2 receptor is the receptor that SARS-CoV-2 binds to um, to get entry into the cell. (laughs) Normally I'd have to explain this, but I think by now we're like, oh yeah, ACE2, I know what that is. (laughs) Like we're all, we're all virologists now. Um, (laughs) And, you know, that's, I think that's, that's, that's really, um, that's really interesting, right? Like it's, it's like, that, that doesn't it's not a smoking gun right like that like this sure. this co- this totally could have been a, a, a natural origin um and, and this could be a coincidence but i like the thing you said before like is there a plausible way um that this could have happened um the answer is like well yeah there is a plausible way um and that doesn't that's not like, we don't have any like we don't have any concrete um like evidence that this did happen we only have circumstantial evidence that this that this happened and that we shouldn't i think we shouldn't say like yes this is certain because it's certainly not but I, but I do think that it's it's really important to investigate this question and, and ask this question um, really carefully because um, yeah, <laughs> because like yeah, I don't, I don't want to go into all <laughs> that again. I don't want I don't wanna, I don't want to go through all this again. I think sure. It's, um,
0: yeah. yeah, and th- maybe to get a little controversial here for a second, I feel like you know one of the reasons why, um, so you, you see what looks like a lot of just clamping down on any discussion of this whatsoever, right? And and one of the reasons why I asked that question of like why does it matter right, is that I feel like you see a lot of folks that take this and maybe rightly or wrongly assume that, you know, if if it was discovered uh, that, you know, that was that it was either lab origin, you know, accidental or intentional or whatever, that there would be potentially like a big spike in kind of uh, like Asian discrimination or sort of other sort of uh, sort of negative things from that being the leading media narrative. Uh, Does that sound right to you that maybe that's where some of that pushback is
1: coming from? I do think that's where some of that pushback is coming from. I also think that people probably cynically take advantage of that pushback to sort of push their own their own stance. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think you know I think that that uh, we should be very we should be very careful to not point fingers at like, um, I mean <laughs> we should never be like ah it's this <laughs> it's the Chinese people's fault like that's right. that's ridiculous right and, right. and that's like um, yeah it's absurd and I think that one of the reasons I brought up EcoHealth Alliance is that this is a group. It's basically an American group that worked with the Wuhan Institute of Virology that was funded by the NIH, right? Like this, this is U.S. US funded project. And so this was a very much a collaboration between the U S and China. Um, And so this is not a, you know, this question of like, you know, was this a a, a lab leak? It's not a question of, Oh, this is China's fault or, Oh, this is the U.S.'s fault. This would be the fault of the leading scientific community, the international scientific community. And so when we talk about like, how should we change these systems? I think it's it's really not useful to say like ah oh, it's this country's fault or that country's fault. like clearly right. th- these are like systemic things that have to be like have to be like taken together like like we have to coordinate together internationally um, yeah so that like that's that's my response to that because I yeah yeah I think it's just it's pretty ludicrous to like <laughs> well it's ludicrous to blame like a, a people but it's I think it's even right. more ludicrous to yeah yeah yeah
0: and you know I I think you know sort of coming to that um, that question of what are the systemic challenges there is that it feels like, uh, you know, I like thinking about the concept of kind of failure modes, right? Like you have things that maybe usually are good ways of acting or usually are are sort of like uh, good ways of thinking about things, but they have failure modes, right? There's, if you're thinking this way, maybe there's a couple of these bad things that are going to happen that you need to make sure of. Uh, And it feels like, uh, you know, some of this uh, maybe too much gain of function research, or other things in this area, is kind of like a failure mode of curiosity, or a failure mode of sort of academic uh, research um, in general. And I'm curious for us to to maybe talk about what forces are are feeding that, and maybe how we can uh, sort of undo that a little bit, or, or maybe how we can address that because it feels like you know there's there's both just curiosity, but there's also people's kind of careers on their line. The sort of publish or perish. Yeah, how do you think about this?
1: Yeah. I think this also goes back to your question of, like, why is it important that we figure out the origin? Um, uh-huh. And I, wh- one of the reasons why it's important is that w- one of the ways that people are responding to this is, is saying, to, to this pandemic, is to say, oh, we need to do more research like this, like, like the research sure. the Wuhan Institute of Virology was doing, like Eagle Health Alliance was doing. Like, we, need to, we need to sequence even more samples, like samples of viruses from the wild, from bats. Like, and, and basically, if that was the kind of research that created this pandemic, and our response to it is to do a bunch more of that research. That's like that's yeah. really bad. Like we're, what we're doing right. then is like we're responding to this risk by creating much more risk, um, which is like obviously the opposite of what we want. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is a this is a, a hard a hard challenge because um, it sort of requires well, <laughs> it requires really good threat modeling. You know, it requires a like a a sort of good assessment of where the risks are most likely to be. Um, and that's, that's hard. That's hard to do. I think I like wish I could say like, ah, uh, and here's how, here's like the, the path forward. Yeah. Can you um, actually real fast? Uh, we've used that term threat modeling a fair bit and,
0: and maybe, you know, I can, I can intuit what that means, but can you give us a little bit more of a definition?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think the intuitive one is is basically right, which is like okay. you are trying to conduct an analysis of what are the most plausible sources of threat. Um, and so you know, to, to to be more in depth, it's basically- Well, and maybe why it's important too, because I feel like it's counterintuitive how many times, or I often forget to do it when I'm thinking about risks, right? Yeah. I, I think part of why it's important is to sort of like counter like availability bias, right? Yeah. Like availability heuristic, where you're like, here's the things I can think of. Um, like, those are the things that I'm going to worry about because like I've seen evidence of them. and. Threat modeling, like, is trying to be much more intentional about that, where you say, like, let me find the best reference classes of the kinds of threats that have happened before. So, like, you know, and wh- one of the things I do in addition to researching sort of large scale, like, global catastrophe type type work, um, is the sort of very practical information security, operational security. Um, you know, how can I make your company more secure? Right. And I think it's it's often quite important to sort of consider like a company's assets and be like, okay, what could someone steal or like, what could someone get from you that would be economically useful to them? Um, And then how would they do that? Because there's like lots and lots of potential security controls you could throw at a company, you know, you can, um, and and there's like all sorts of like different expensive software that you can use to try to like detect various threats. But if you Mm -hmm. don't start from the position of like, what does an attacker actually want from you? Or like, what are like, where is someone actually going to come after you? It doesn't matter like where you're, you know, vulnerable, it matters, like, you know, wh- where are people actually going to, to attack? And so I think, yeah, that's, that's like why I'd say threat modeling is important, is that it, it helps you, um, yeah, it's, it's an attempt to understand where the, like, likely sources of risk will come from. hmm yeah, it makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, I've had to do this even. You know, when you're thinking through your own personal digital security, right? You're like, okay, well, there's like a huge backlog of things where I should reset these passwords, and I should go install this antivirus, and I should do all these sorts of things. Um, but both at work and at home, I've I've tried to you know get myself to do that first. Okay, like what's the most likely thing that's going to happen here, and then you know start there, right? Other than you know what's the scariest thing I can think of, you know, or, or like th- th- there's so many different ways of thinking about how to prioritize.
1: Uh, security, right? Well, and it feels a little nebulous, right? You're like, why yeah. am I doing all these things? But I, you know, I can give you concrete examples of why. It's like someone wants to hack your computer so that they can like encrypt your hard drive and demand Bitcoin from you. Like, yeah, that's just a to- that's a thing that that's like that's happened to people I know. Um, that's a very common thing. If you trade cryptocurrency, someone will want to hack into your Coinbase account to steal all your cryptocurrency. That one's easy. That's straightforward. Sure. Um, but then there's a question of like. How they will do that. So threat modeling can also get more into sort of this, like what is the, what is the the threat landscape. So in you know in your case, I'd say well, one way that people might want to do this. And I don't I don't know if you hold cryptocurrency, but if you do, one way that people might want to do this is um, basically uh, uh, port your phone number to a different phone, right? Um, do yeah. a SIM card swap, and then they will try to use that fo- that phone number to reset your Coinbase account, or, or to reset your you know your Gmail account, which will then they'll then use to reset your your Coinbase account. Um, So that's a a very common type of attack. And so, you know, if we were doing some like, you know, personal threat modeling, um, you know, that's like one of the things I'd start with, Be like, aha, I've seen this attack before, I know this reference class exists, like, let's, let's start there. Yeah.
0: And I think just as some quick uh, advice to some folks, uh, call up your phone company, ask them to put phone number porting protection on, that usually doesn't help because they can get social engineered pretty easily. Uh, So then the next thing that you want to do is just try never to use your phone number as a two-factor authentication solution. Use either Google Authenticator or Authy. uh, And uh, and you can correct me at the end if I'm wrong about any of this stuff. Uh, But then if you're going to use Authy, always make sure to use a backup uh, password on it. Uh, And my recommendation is Authy because Google Authenticator usually isn't backed up on iOS, at least I know. And so you can lose your two-factor authentication. So install Authy, add a backup password, and use that for all your 2FA is my advice. I don't know if that would be the same for you. I
1: think that's great. Yeah. I think the additional thing I'd add to that is that Yuba keys are really great. Like yeah, like that's a, true. A physical, yeah. a physical thing. And like, they're a, they're a little annoying to set up, but once you set them up, I think it's actually quite, quite easy. You only need to like use them every like few months or something. Um, put them on a key ring. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. And we'll include links to all these things in the notes. And then you get to feel oh. like a
0: hacker because you're like, yeah, I have my Yuba keys on my key ring. I know. And we're not sponsored <laughs> by these companies, but maybe we should be. That's
1: good. I know, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, good stuff. All right. Um yeah, so let's see. We're talking about uh I'm curious if there's anything else related to the pandemic that maybe we should talk about. Um
1: hmm. well I <laughs> I can I can bring up one last example of like the kind of uh, dual use uh research that I'm worried about. Um yeah. And as far as I know, no one's doing this right now, but this is the kind of thing that people would want to do. And so I want to be like, I want to give another concrete example, just so people have it in their minds of like, why is this a concern? Um, and that's with SARS-CoV-2. Um, people are concerned about new variants evolving, right? We've seen a bunch right. of new variants um, and it's certainly possible. You know, it's it's, it's it's not possible. It's almost certain that there will be more. Um, and people are worried about variants that can um, evade the immune response induced by both natural infections and especially vaccine-induced um immune response. Um, so so some bright some, scientists might be like, huh, I know what we should do. We should like try to create those variants so that we know what to protect against, or then maybe we can make vaccines in advance for those kinds of variants, which on one hand, yeah, maybe you could create vaccines for those in advance. On the other hand, don't create variants that can evade the immune that, that right. can evade. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, that's exactly the kind of um, both gain of function work and yet yeah, dual use research um, that I think we really shouldn't do. Mm Yeah. And there's a question we can, we can tie it back. We can tie it back to everything. Is that an information hazard that I just said that? I don't think so. (laughs) And the reason why is because like, you know, the people that I'm worried about doing this kind of work will have already thought about it. And, you know, you and I can't go to our lab and be like, yeah, let's like whip up some new variants. So it's like, you know, it's, this you know, so that that's, yeah.
0: Well, and that's, you know, tying some of these things together, you know, um, that, that threat modeling uh, is very much related to sort of why I expressed er- earlier that heuristic I have around sort of cheap and dangerous, uh, because the sort of thing that I'm worried about is uh, there seems to be this trend where uh, each year it becomes easier and easier to cause more and more destruction, kind of with the march of technology, right? Um, And so the thing that I'm just worried about is, you know, anything where like the threat model that I'm concerned about is, is like, like, like a very small group, maybe like one or a few sort of bad actors, you know, causing you know, trying trying to sort of cause mass destruction, sort of terrorism, or whatever. Uh, I'm not so worried about nation states or whatever because they're kind of going to be doing this stuff anyway. They're going to have like tons of bright people trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah, and so that's my threat model is just basically try not to share things that like a
1: few crazy people could use to cause a lot of harm. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Um, Producer Nick just pointed out that the advent of new gene printers is is a risk here. Um, yes. in terms of things yeah. getting cheaper. I think Y Combinator has a has a company. That's that's that that does this. Basically, it's like a DNA printer for your desktop, it's like a few thousand yep. dollars. Jeez. Um, and yeah, on one hand, you're like, you know, this will be really useful. On the other hand, um, this this does, you know, really democratize the technology in a way that that we should really think about, like, you know, how far we want to go in this direction and whether there should be significant regulation of that. Um, right. The the ones yeah. that are being produced right now can only produce things that are like a few base pairs long. Um, we're not we're, we're talking like maybe like dozens of, of base pairs long. So it's not it's not like you're not going to be printing out a small, smallpox genome. Um, but, but still, you know, things can be stitched together and you know this, yeah. this is the kind of thing where I'm like, you know, we should really figure this out before, before we have all of that technology easily available that you can buy on Amazon. Like, yes. Um, yeah,
0: well, and this is just to paint a little bit of picture on how, uh, for folks, how this works right now is if you, if you want a, uh, 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 DNA in a viral vector to be ready to be injected into a cell. Uh, you can literally email a list of GATACAG, you know, a DNA strand to a company, and they will send it back to you through the mail as a viral ve- in a viral vector. And before they do that, they will run quote unquote, at least some of them will, the, the like good actors will run quote unquote antivirus software against that sequence to make sure that they're not sending you something dangerous. Um, right, exactly. (laughs) Um, but not everybody does it and it becomes a lot easier to, you know, jailbreak a desktop printer or whatever as these get better and better. And so there is some very, uh, I hope somebody, uh, starts to work on uh, increasingly better Antivirus and sort of detection of uh, analogs and stuff like this um, to, to help us prevent the the generation of these sequences that might be dangerous. Uh, it seems like a hard problem, but potentially an addressable one.
1: Yeah, I think <laughs> I, I have this bad habit of proposing problems and then not proposing any solutions. So, yeah. Gavin, it's it's your job to keep me uh, keep us optimistic. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the, I think, if I'm being really realistic here, one of the one of the big challenges is that. States have not been historically very successful at um, suppressing the development of new technologies. Right. Um, and I think the, the sort of biggest success case where states have like, you know, a modern group of states has tried really hard to suppress the development of technology. It's been um, with nuclear weapons. It's been sort of mm-hmm. new countries gaining nuclear capabilities. And I would say that they have been pretty successful at that because there's only about nine nuclear powers, um, a bit more if you count the the powers that have nuclear reactors, but not nuclear weapons, because it's a pretty small step to go from a functioning nuclear reactor to a functional nuclear weapon. It's still a Mm -hmm. step, but it's not, it's much, it's a much smaller step than than the step of going from no nuclear power to nuclear power, uh, for example. Yeah. Um, So that's been moderately successful, um, but um, that's, that's about it. (laughs) There haven't Mm. been many other things where, where states have been very successful at sort of preventing new technologies from being developed where there was an economic incentive for them to be developed.
0: Right. And yeah. so
1: again jumping back to sort of this threat modeling question, you know, we can think about all sorts of technologies that could cause harm, but the ones that we should be focused on are ones where, you know, some agent is likely to create the technology and, you know, the most the most the biggest motivator for the creation of the technologies of course is money, right? Is is, is right. the economic factor. And it's not the only one. You know, we can look at we can look at bioweapons programs where they're not most motivated by economic effects, they're motivated by you know sort of whatever the internal defense priorities of that of that project are sure um, but in terms of commercial development where most of the the sort of fundamental research happens um or well there's there's academic and then there's commercial and these you know have a lot of interplay um but yeah it's, i think it's it's useful to think about like you know where where is where are there sort of economic paths to to these new to tech uh developments
0: yeah totally so, so
1: gavin if you have a solution to how do we fundamentally <laughs> change states so that they are capable of, of doing strategic wise regulation of new technologies? I would love to know. <laughs> oh, man.
0: Well, you know what? Maybe, maybe after season two, we'll have an answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Um, you should get on some of the governance people who are doing like uh, experimentations and in, in new types of governance, because I, I don't know yeah. like if we should be optimistic about that, but I do feel excited about it, you know? like Because I'm like, yeah, there are things being tried that have never been tried before um, in terms of governance. And that's, there's something there.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I think that there's also you know governance and also um, you know uh, alternative economic structures, right? There's definitely you know lots of really interesting uh, stuff going on in sort of decentralized finance, crypto uh, around like how do you create better incentives, economic incentives for for doing sort of pro-social things. Yeah. Um, also, sort of, um, you know. So there's this sort of thing where, well, you know, hopefully we can try to uh, prevent the development of sort of uh, dangerous incarnations of technologies. But you know, in some ways, maybe the cat is out of the bag. And and sort of, if that is the case, right, then it begs the question: um, What does it look like for us just to like build defensive technologies, or sort of build technologies to increase security? You know, I've often wondered about. You know, there's this there's this sort of cool paradigm by which we can um, you know, if if there's a new uh, a digital sort of security issue, a new um, piece of malware, you know, you get a um, detection heuristic that immediately uh, gets sort of like ingested by, you know, somebody like Microsoft or, uh, you know, another antivirus company, and then instantly distributed to every computer around the world. And within a matter of, you know, seconds, if they're up to date or sort of days, if it's sort of rolling out, uh, now everybody is secured against this new virus. Right. And so it kind of begs the question, is there a way that we can do this for our own immune systems? You know? Um, So I'm curious, you know, what you think about that? And if there's other sort of uh, kind of defensive technologies you think we could be investing in on this stuff?
1: Yeah. So this is where I, I, this is where we get to have the good news. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Like we've had some, we've had some like, oh man, some of these risks are really hard. Some of these governance questions are really hard. It's really hard to like fundamentally regulate the, you know, new technologies, um, but it's not as hard to deploy new technologies, which is cool. Like, we're really good at doing that, especially where there are economic incentives to deploy those technologies. And I hear I think, is a case where there's some mix. There are some of these defensive new biotechnologies that will be really um, commercially valuable, in which case, like, we're going to deploy them, and there'll be some where we may need to, like, seriously subsidize them in order to be valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, the part about patching, and I'm going to come back to that. That's actually, it's a really important point. Uh-huh. Um, but but first, let me just like lay out the the really obvious um, good step that we can take, sure. which is um, sequencing. So mm. um, one of the thing that I think most people don't realize that's that's happened over the last year and a half is that we have dramatically expanded the scope of both PCR testing, um, you know, the the sort of molecular testing that is the standard um, COVID test. Yeah, um, go in for a nose swab. Um, that's that's the, the standard yep, PCR test. Yep, it's just like yep. looking for a you know a particular a particular sequence. It's like ah is this sequence present or is it not? Um, so it's a binary, or and it can it can look for a number of them. So it can be like you know are these is, is one two three and four sequences present? Um, which is also helpful because you can detect new variants that way. So that's something that's dramatically expanded, um, sort of too slowly at the beginning of the pandemic. But that's mm-hmm. that's an aside. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is sequencing. So sequencing is you know what it sounds like. You're you're just figuring out. Um, what what all of the what all of the base pairs are for, of the of the sample that you're you're looking at, um, and so this is very helpful for um, tracking new variants um, and right. tracking the evolution of variants. And tr- there's been tremendous effort um, in the US and the UK and some other countries, but especially led by the UK and then a little later by the US to to have significant coverage. Um, so this is amazing. We, I, I'm yeah. I'm really I'm really proud of the the teams that have worked on this. Um, Trevor Bedford is a person that I I follow on Twitter who sort of has like been the person, I think sort of shouting loudest about this. And and also he runs the website nextstrain.org, which is a great a great web resource for tracking viral evolution of SARS-CoV-2. Um, nice. Really tremendous work. Is um, this the
0: one that shows the sort of circular graphs of the uh, uh, variants? I think so,
1: yeah. I thought it was super cool
0: because I've seen somebody, I think it's the same JavaScript libraries, but like I've seen people do these kind of circle graphs where you can see sort of, uh, the evolution of the sequences, but it's funny because they've used it for also the evolution of species, uh, the same sort of graphing tech. And it's really cool to be able to trace this through time to see how the strains evolve. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's all,
1: it's all phylogeny, right? It's all evolutionary lineages. Right. Um, Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't know if we talked about this, but I, my background is evolutionary theory and sort of how I got into security and, uh, (laughs) existential risk and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, how? Um, wait, yeah, tell me how, how did that, how did that <laughs> jump happen? Yeah. Um, well, so <laughs> evolutionary theory is the thing that got me really interested in thinking about the long term because I was thinking mm. about sort of uh, like yeah. the, the rise and fall of lineages, and, and I'm like, ah, oh, humans like might go extinct. That's just a thing that could totally happen. And I was like, yeah. ah, has has anyone else seriously studied this? And that's when I found the sort of Future of Humanity Institute, Nick Bostrom, and, and the rest of that cluster. Nice, um, which is sort of the connect. yeah, it's, it' sort of comes full circle because now we're talking about you know viral phylogenies and the evolution of totally. viruses and, yep. and central risk absolutely. <laughs> wow uh, so yeah makes I, sense. yeah, so i'm so I'm really so i'm it's it's really exciting that we've expanded um sequencing so much. This is like basically happening um, at a lot of labs around the country. And I think the next step is to have this happening not only in labs where you take a sample and you send it to a lab, but but basically happening. Um, at the, at the clinical level so that you go into your clinic, um, you know, you have a, you have some sort of, some sort of, uh, in- infection and they don't, they don't know what it is, but they just, they right. take a swab and then they, they take it to the back and then, you know, they do some, probably some like on-chip microfluidics to process the sample. And then they run it through one of these desktop sequencers. Um, and they, they basically can say, yeah, here's the sequence of the virus that we found or the, or the bacteria or, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm you know, maybe maybe it's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, potential things that you can detect with sort of arbitrary read access to biological samples. Yeah, it's it's that, amazingly broad and powerful.
0: That's really interesting. I, I've, so one of the ones that I've uh, just kind of like armchair speculated about, and I'm sure there's a million reasons why this might be bad, but I'm just curious on your thoughts is like what it would look like for us to have more uh, detection sort of at uh, like border crossings, airports, stuff like that. Do you have thoughts there?
1: Yeah, so that's like, that's, so there's a number of things. I mean, there's some serious privacy questions right. there. Yep. So you can do environmental detection where you're basically like looking at things coming through the filters and then oh, maybe oh, yeah. you're like running PCR on it, or maybe you are doing some sequencing, but you, you have this problem of you're, you're just getting tons and tons of stuff. So yep. you're like signal to noise ratio is way lower. Um, the the, the low hanging fruit is biological samples, which means swabbing people. And then mm-hmm. now you have to ask the question, is it ethical to swab people as they come through airports? Um that's a hard question. <laughs> <Yeah. right>? Like <laughs> there's it would clearly be pretty good for for sort of like, you know, tracking and containing epidemics, but it's pretty invasive. So, you know, and, and you could you could also sequence someone's genome from that. So <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's like, do you do you want uh you know, do you want a, a country to do that to, to sort of track the movement of a minority population? That seems pretty bad. So Hard, hard questions.
0: Yeah. Well, sounds like we need to get somebody on who maybe can speak to the privacy angle of that.
1: Yeah. Maybe. Uh, yeah. No. I, I think yeah. it's a, it's fascinating. But yeah. I but I do think at the clinical level, there's a much stronger case for it. That makes sense. At least yeah. in the US, your your information is already protected by HIPAA, so I think uh, privacy privacy is less of a concern. Um, and you can sense. hopefully not. You know, <laughs> I don't think I don't think HIPAA protects the like sequence data of the viruses you carry. So, um, <laughs> or hopefully not. Um, and so, what you could do with that is you could build a map of any virus, like any virus that's going through a population, whether it's tracking seasonal flu would be super useful for that, mm-hmm. but it would also allow you to, you know, as soon as something new pops up, you would, you would have it sequence you know, like within days. And and that's, yeah, oh, that's, that's extremely powerful, right? Cause if you have a new pandemic, you now have almost like real time surveillance of, of, the, of the, the emergence of a new pandemic. And so this could be a really powerful tool um, even at partial coverage, even at par- like, you know, obviously if you had it in every clinic, Th- that would be amazing. But even if you only had it in like 10% of clinics, 5% of clinics, you know, if that would and you spread them out in sort of like in sort of strategic ways, that would allow you to have like an early warning system for new pandemics. Um that would be super powerful. And we we just like have we like we almost have the tech we like we totally have the technology for it, but we don't have it cheap enough. So there is like some miniaturization that needs to happen. Um, there's mm-hmm. some like you know sort of investment in um microfluidics that needs to happen. Yeah. Actually Gavin, before you were asking me about, like, are there ways that people can help? Mm-hmm. I think yeah. I realize this is one of them. Um, if people have relevant expertise um, in, in sort of microfluidics or in sort of sort of relevant biotech areas that yeah. would be relevant for uh, clinical sequencing, clinical metagenomics, um, that, that's totally a thing. You know, shoot me a message. Um, I'm working with a group of people. Who are trying to make this happen? Basically, that's the goal awesome. is like now is probably the time. It seems like we're, we're close enough technologically, and now there's like a massive recognition of the need for it. That this could be a moment where we could really push this thing through and like just have a really powerful tool for preventing future pandemics.
0: That's awesome. Thanks for thanks for saying that. I have an idea for maybe one or two people to send your way, and yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great offer. Um, if they wanted to uh, reach out to you, what's the best way to reach you?
1: Um. Yeah, that's a good question. Um,
0: so LinkedIn or do you have a
1: website or? Yeah. yeah. Me, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> let me think about that and get back because I'm like, I don't really know that I want yeah. to.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're just going to have,
1: yeah, uh, you know,
0: I'd say we're going to edit this, but we're not because we're just going to joke about how many crazies you're going to get, uh, you know, talking to you about how the lab leak hypothesis and everything. Yeah, know this is going
1: to be great. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, um, oh, yeah. Oh, no, just wait till we get the anti-vaxxers in case. Yeah, just, just be email. <laughs> Yeah, email security at gordianresearch.org. That that is probably my most public email address right now. That's Great. fine. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um,
0: maybe it's just like a uh funny anecdote to um to to wrap to start wrapping us up here. Are you familiar with the uh, the uh, World of Warcraft plague that happened? No, yeah. no, yeah. So this was this was pretty fun. It um so basically, I think this was maybe like uh, six or seven years ago. So, World of Warcraft is this big, massively multiplayer online game. uh, And there is, um, so you have tons of people playing in these games, and there's these these dungeons, which are basically, they're sort of these kind of like isolated uh, places in the game uh, that uh, people can go and you fight monsters, and then you come out of the dungeon, uh, and the dungeon gets kind of like reset. And then the rest of the world is kind of like a persistent kind of like world, like, you know, our world out here. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the dungeon, uh, there was a boss that cast a plague and it cast a, uh, it's called the Corrupted Blood Incident, says Nick. Um, and uh, basically, uh, Corrupted Blood was cast uh, on you and like you could dispel it at the dungeon or whatever, but there was code that as soon as you left the dungeon, uh, it would dispel this uh, from all the players. Uh, however, somebody had a pet and it got cast on their pet and they uh de-summoned their pet, uh, which sort of put it back in their inventory. And then they came out of the dungeon and brought their pet back out in the middle of a very densely populated city. (laughs) (laughs) And so it started jumping from player to player to player, and then it affected the guards, and then it would affect anybody who sort of passed through the city gates. And then it started sort of spreading on like the public transit through like the different airships in the game. (laughs) And so the thing that was fascinating about this was uh, that because it's a game, you know, all this stuff is stored in a database. And so they had perfect information for the spread of this virus throughout the game. And so the CDC actually started working with them and requisitioned the data to start better modeling disease spread.
1: That's super cool.
0: Yeah. And so it's just (laughs) wild to think about how these things cross over between, yeah Like accidental pandemic modeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, So one last thing that I think will be fun to talk about before we go is there is a project that, um, I uh, I think it would be fun for us to discuss. I think it was kind of uh, maybe uh, uh, some folks that you know, I think we both know, um, but um, it was called the MicroCOVID Project. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and and sort of what you think is interesting about that kind of going forward?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, so I would describe my role as like a beta tester <laughs> for, this, <laughs> sure, for, this, yeah. for this project. Um, and it sort of arose in part because Catherine um, Olson and I are really good friends and she was trying to figure out like, okay, how do we coordinate among different houses um, to be able to still hang out and see each other? Because yep. everyone, the very beginning of the pandemic, were like, what's safe to do? Like, what are like CDC guidelines? We're not supposed to like associate with any other households. Does that mean for the like, indefinite future, we're just not going to be able to see each other. And so she created this with a, with a couple other friends. She created this like system of, can we score every interaction and basically give it a point score in terms of microcovid's, which is one millionth, risk of catching COVID yep. um, and can we, can we quantify normal interactions? So like, you know, if I go to a grocery store in Berkeley and there's 10 other people in the grocery store and I'm like more than six feet away from them at all times, you know, how many micro COVIDs is that? And then you can enter it into the online calculator that they made um, or the sort of spreadsheet that they made if you wanted to have a more in-depth tracking system Yep. and you can start to track, um, what what the risks of all of those interactions were including like i'm interacting with you and i know that you are at 100 microcovids and then i can say you know are we both wearing masks are we indoors or outdoors and i think that like so so one this is super useful if you know if you are trying to uh, uh avoid yeah catching this virus or trying to figure out visiting family um, yeah. it's very useful. It, they've updated it to include information about if you're vaccinated, uh, which, you know, and even which reduces. vaccination. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I use it
0: a bunch in my life and I, and I, I thought the thing that was interesting is, you know, when you first looked at it, I was like, uh, so I really want to do this for like every single calculation I have. This seems, you know, absurd, but the place that I just found it to be useful was like, you know, we would have certain debates in the house about whether activities were useful or not, or like, you know, just every, every couple of weeks, maybe I would pull it up and do like a little tally on a thing. And then, you know, it'd be shocking cuz sometimes your intuition is off by like an order of magnitude you know oh and maybe you could talk to yeah the the uh, i think it was the uh, the prevalence was the most surprising bit right
1: yeah so what one thing i really liked about it is that i started to gain an intuition for like what was risky and what wasn't and when when things changed in ways that were surprising so like mm-hmm. one obvious one is that like almost everything outdoors is super low risk and and things indoors like you should almost just worry about things indoors right um so like, and I think this was very different than what most people thought. So like people would like wear masks outdoors and like, yeah, sure, you can wear masks outdoors. That does reduce your risk a little bit. But like, if no one was wearing a mask outdoors, I don't think that would change the, the course of the pandemic much at all, which is, right. which is like, I think pretty wild. Um, so, but then an, another one was that like going into a grocery store when the prevalence was low was like somewhat risky. Um, mm-hmm. But when the prevalence was high, it was quite risky. Mm-hmm. So like, I think, and that, that could change by a factor of like 20 Right. Um, and so I think it was like, not intuitive, that like the same thing of like, I'm going into the same grocery store, there's the same amount of people in it. And now it's 20 times as risky as before. Um, and that's just because the underlying prevalence had changed so much. And I think that part, I just like wouldn't have had any intuition for without having the like quantified risk in my hand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense in retrospect, right? You're like, yeah, of course, it makes sense. Like, you know, how many cases there are in my zip code, but it is, yeah, it's just so alien to have, yeah, it, every, every, to, to your entire sensory system, everything exactly the same as it was a week ago, but now you have to think about it as a completely just r- different risk landscape,
1: right? And I, I really appreciated, like, doing the, like, daily practice of <laughs> of thinking about quantified risk, um, and I, I realized that that's, like, the nerdiest thing ever, but I, I think that it's it's... It like felt like I uh, developed a new way of thinking that I now want to apply to other things. Not so much because I want to calculate the like the micro of like every you know, which is like the tiny you know probability of death or something for every you know thing I do. Can I tell I you really... my
0: takeaway for that? Because I, I looked yeah, at yeah, this yeah. a little bit.
1: Absolutely. My takeaway
0: for this was basically like the two things you should avoid is anything close to water can kill you very quickly. <laughs> and <Yeah. then laughs> The second one is the first ten years of a new extreme sport if you avoid both of those things, you avoided a very, very big chance of micromorts. Yeah. Does
1: rollerblading count as an extreme sport?
0: Um, No, <laughs> but I do think I one wheel. And so like, it feels like that's kind of on the edge. Cause basically the problem is just in the beginning of the sport, they haven't figured out the safety stuff yet. And then eventually they figure it out or it gets banned yeah. or something, you yeah, know? Cool. Yeah. Cool. Cool. But yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. That's good to know. Yeah. I, and I think that like, that's also a really useful thing to think about is like, when do you want to do like all of the calculations? And when do you want to like compress them into a heuristic that you then use? Right. Um, because it's not reasonable to do all the calculations all the time. Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, uh, you know, one of the one of the interesting questions here is, you know, we saw a lot of kind of conflicting guidance in the media, right? And a lot of it seems to be, I you know, I don't think it was sort of, uh, you know, I don't think I, most of the times it wasn't ill will. And it wasn't even sort of like, um but it was just that the stuff is super hard to understand. And yep. it really makes you kind of wish like, uh, like, I just wish that everybody had like, just kind of like plugged it into micro COVID before they wrote the article, <laughs>
1: you know, yep, or like, yep, yep. yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. I think, yeah, I think one thing that gave me hope from this, because yeah, th- it was really hard when there was conflicting information and there was like, don't wear masks, they don't help, or they might even make things worse to, oh no, you absolutely need to have to wear masks. Um, I think that <laughs> there's like two things. I'd say like one, like treat institutions with like the respect they deserve, which is like some but not excessive respect, which is to say, sure. like if you just followed the CDC guidelines throughout the pandemic, I think you know, you wouldn't have gotten perfect advice, but it wasn't it wasn't like terrible. And I mm-hmm. think some people might push back against that and be like, well, what about the like super conflicting mask advice? And I'm like, yeah, that was conflicting. It was bad that they did that. But also, like, they did a lot better than a random person. So like they I actually think that if you just followed their advice, like you can probably do much better, but you'd be like, okay. So I'd say like, you know, they still were they still were like fine. <laughs> um, and I think that we just like have high standards and it's good that we have high standards, but I, I wanna like give them the credit. I wanna give them the credit that they're like acting as like somewhat functional institutions, even if they're not like as as functional as we'd like. Um, and then the other one is just like, like don't be afraid to think about things yourself. I, Cause I yeah. think that like with masks, one of, the, one of the things was like, well, like we can think through the mechanisms, how they work. You can like, look it up. <laughs> the studies are just like available online. We have all the information and yeah, it's hard to interpret. And like, yeah. I don't think we should like have a false certainty and we should like recognize that these things can be really challenging, but also like, just like, don't throw your brain away. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> like, like, you know, it's like, ah, like N95s are used and they like keep out most particles. So I think one of the things that our friends got right really early on was like, an N95 will protect you much more than a surgical mask. If you're worried yep. about risk, wear an N95. Um, or a respirator, yeah. Yeah. And like, you don't need the CDC to tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's just, that's just going to be true because you can think about particle size and you can think about what, yeah you know, what a respirator does. You can have a P100. Um, you know, I don't think, I don't think I ever saw a official health guidance recommendation saying a P100 will protect you more than like an N95, but I'm almost certain that's true. Right. And so- like I'm like, well, we just figured that out by first principles reasoning. So yep. I think I just like encourage people like, yeah, if there's smoke, put on a respirator. If you're worried about a virus, put on a respirator. <laughs> like it's yep. it's like you can just you can just figure it out. And all of us who
0: went to Burning Man kind of had some pretty good intuitions about this in the first place. You get caught in enough dust storms and you know which masks work.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, well, hey, this has been uh, this has been quite a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing all this with us and. Um, We'll include uh, notes to all this. Hopefully we can um, start getting a little bit of our uh, uh, story in order around some of this virus research and figure out better ways of doing it without raising all the risks. And uh, I look forward to continuing the conversations about how we keep this world a little bit more secure with you as we go.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Great talking, Gavin.
0: All right. Take care. Have a great day.
1: Thank you